Okay, welcome to the funeral cast, everybody. And this is kind of an interesting experiment. This is our first live event. Now, here's the thing. Normally, when you hear about a live event from a podcast, what do you hear? You hear a ton of applause in the background, but this is via Zoom. So therefore, um, you are they're all muted. Right. So rest assured to the listeners out there, there is somewhere between 650 and 700 people on this Zoom chat right now, and they are all giving a standing ovation for the beginning of the funeral cast. So if you can picture that in your mind, that's right. I see all the clap emojis going off on the Zoom right now. It is amazing. So thank you, everybody, for being so encouraging and showing up from really all over the world. All right. So before we get started, um, what, just a couple of things from our sponsors. Um, so this is an embalming history with Ben episode here, um, and it is brought to you by Frigid Fluid. Uh, one of the most, uh, one of the newest things that we have going on is our annual fun run. So this is going to be a virtual fun run on September 3rd, uh, 2023. Now, you might be thinking to yourself that I am not a runner. I do not want to run this, but that's okay. Me either. I'm not a runner, but I do love to walk. One of the things that's kind of fun that I've noticed the last couple of years that people do is they go to cemeteries. Last year, I went to a historic cemetery here in Chicago. Um, we had Kelsey out in Colorado. Kelsey and Mar Martha did a cemetery that used to have all wood headstones that burned. So it was complete. It's a cemetery where nobody's marked. So, you know, go out there um, and do your uh, most interesting cemetery nearby and then share it with us. All right. The other thing that I have here for the um, uh, 700 people in the audience, I also have this QR code that is a link to the uh, Frigid website. If you follow to Embalm Better uh, tab on there, you will be able to register for the um, uh, the 5K and 10K there. And you get a cool T-shirt with the logo. Um, I'm sure that if you are a listener of this show that you will see it around and it looks pretty cool. All right. Nelson, anything else you want to add to that? No, not really. Stay, stay in touch with us. Ben is going to be going to a lot of the shows in, in the summer. You know, we're very active this summer. We're going to be going to a lot of your local trade shows. So I know there's a gentleman from Texas here. Most of you are from Illinois. I believe you're going to be taking advantage of the CEUs that we're providing here, but stay in touch with us, follow us on social media. We use social media as a platform to connect with you. Um, and yeah, just that that's the only thing that I want to add. And I want to thank you, Ben, before you start, because I know that you spend quite some time, you know, researching about this. So I look forward to this. Yeah, it should be fun. Um, thank you. Yeah, that's a great point about the, the conferences. Pay attention. I mean, we seem to be at everyone. And yes, I personally will be going to the Illinois one. So that one I'll see in Springfield if you can make it down there. I'm kind of excited about myself. I've been to a lot of Illinois conventions, but I haven't been to one in Southern Illinois yet. So I'm looking to see uh, what the difference between the two is. All right. So on with the show. Okay, so. Tonight, we are going to be talking about two um, members of um, get funeral history, all right? We have two men that aren't necessarily contemporaries, but lived around the same time. So we have William Harvey. He is an anatomist. 
Um, and one of his main things that we'll find is that he was the one that identified circulation of blood flow, which obviously for embalmers is a pretty big deal. And then we have Frederick Rausch, and he is a Dutch anatomist who um, was one of the first people to use arterial injection for preservation and a whole lot more than that. So before I get started, Nelson, when I tell you about, when I tell you the time period 16th and 17th century, so the 1500s and the 1600s in Europe, what do you think about? I think about good wine in France for sure, because that's the first thing that I think when I look at this gentleman. But other than that, I think about, you know, revolutionary times and where, you know, people were trying to make drastic changes. Yeah, actually, that is a great uh, way of thinking about it, because as we'll see, that during these men's lifetimes, there was some really big changes that happened in Europe, uh, both sort of uh, culturally and just regular. Okay, so what about you, Corey? When you think of England or Europe in general during this time, what do you think of? Where's Corey? Hey, bottom left. Yeah, you can he's working on it. There you go. When you think about, you said England? Yeah, or Europe during this time. Well, they didn't do a lot for, for embalming or anything else. <laughs> no, they didn't. But this was kind of the start of that, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But like, what about the rest? I mean, like over here by us, we have medieval times, right? So like castles and knights and stuff. That's what I always think of when it comes to um, this kind of time, right? So, okay. Um, okay, so let's talk about life for the common people during this time. All right, so we have very much a rural lifestyle. In fact, during this time, 90% of Europeans lived on farms or rural communities, all right? And for them, it was a constant threat of crop failure. You know, this was very early on agriculturally uh, for the area. And so they were trying to figure it out. Not only that, but remember, these people were really poor. So it's not like they had a lot of resources to work with or support or um you know the other thing is travel took a really long time to get from place to place so even information about farming would take a long time to get there and that's even like real-time farming stuff so like if your neighbor's farm was suffering from some sort of plague or whatever then you know you may not hear about it until it's too late the wind would blow this stuff faster than um somebody might be able to figure out and tell you so it's kind of a big deal and then to Nelson's point, right, living in France with the wine. So for the peasants in uh, England in particular, they lived on rye and barley. And the main ways that they consumed this was in the form of bread and beer. So this might be the ideal sort of lifestyle to a lot of people um, uh, in this time, outside of the fact that they were like constantly riddled with disease and, you know, they had no indoor, or indoor plumbing or any of that other stuff. Kelly, how long do you think you could survive on just bread and beer in the olden times? Well, I am a connoisseur of a nice, fine loaf of rye bread, and I do like my dark ale. 
Um, however, I'm probably thinking not more than a week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just going to put it out there for in all honesty. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like all I can think about is being super bloated, like all the time. Right. So not only do these people have to contend with like, terrible living conditions but the one way that they can eat their food is just they're just bloated constantly you know so for sure and then don't let that barrel of um beer go bad uh on that way all right so that's kind of like rural life you know but in the um cities guilds were one of the main things now um one of the guilds that we talk about when we learn about funeral history is the Barber Surgeons Guild, right? They're kind of like unions, they're trades people um, that are together. So that's just one example. But there was all sorts of iron workers and um, uh, tailors and, you know, pretty much anything you could think of that um, are going to be guilds people. So that was kind of the difference as far as um, lifestyle goes. This is also a big time of population growth. Um, during uh, Harvey's time, London um, quadrupled in size. So a lot going on there. Um, we weren't quite to the plagues yet at, during his lifetime, but it's a good thing. Let's just say it was a good thing for London that it grew so large because um, it, they were going to suffer here later on. All right. But there were some uh, obvious problems, especially with the way that things work with this population growth, that meant that inflation went crazy. And so the people in the rural communities were having to supply materials and things like that, that for the, um, you know, the people in the cities, well, they couldn't keep up with the demand. And then of course, um, they were like working overtime and they didn't have the um, resources that they needed. So this actually uh, led to like a lot of uprisings and riots and stuff in the rural communities during this time. So people were not happy. So even the best beer and bread maybe in history uh, couldn't keep these people under control. All right. So, um, all right. So uh, during this time, it should come to no surprise uh, to you that family was the primary social and economic unit, right? They worked together, they hung out together, you know, um, and so that was especially in the rural communities where there wasn't a lot of people. But if um, somebody want to throw a guess at me, a guess at me here, Sarah, if you had to guess how big the average nuclear family was, right? So that would be the mom, dad, and number of kids. How many people would you just take a stab at? Four. Four? All right, that's that's actually a pretty good that's actually a pretty good guess because from and this is why I say because like normally it's my opinion in a time when there's like you know tons of like illnesses and death and lack of resources and stuff that people tend to have a lot of kids right but according to what I found the nuclear family was five to six people so there really wasn't a lot of um, uh, a lot of members of a family, which kind of surprised me. And then I found another statistic um, that kind of surprised me. Maybe this will surprise you too, that a lot of times the 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 um, people married late as, you know, for their life expectancy. So it says that the average age of marriage for women was age 25. So that's like 
I know I see a lot of hundreds of faces out there with a look on their faces like really really because like what age do we normally think at Nelson that these people are getting married at in the middle ages I, I mean when I look at their pictures I think maybe mid 50s <laughs> yeah but it's but I mean I go through that at work you know sometimes people guess that I'm younger but I'm actually 58 so that, that I, I don't blame them yeah, that's true. You're, you're you're nearing retirement age. Yeah, I mean, because like in my mind, I'm thinking that people are getting married at this time when it's like when they're like ten. Yeah, like, you're right. You're right. Yeah, somebody's like getting married at like twenty five. I'm like, wow, you know, that's even kind of old for like our parents' generation. You know, some people get married younger than that now. So, kind of strange. So. And then, of course, um, rural communities in general, they were ruled by lords who would kind of oversee, you know, be in charge of the, not oversee, but be in charge of the land being farmed a lot of times. And then, of course, the church um, had a lot of influences, too. So while they weren't technically a governing body, you know, they had the same kind of weight to throw around as a governing body. All right. So the other thing that we kind of know about uh, this time period is the witchcraft um witchcraft trials that occurred during this time kelly i see you nodding your head what do you know about the witchcraft trials in europe around this time um that many people were falsely accused um just based by how they walked down the street or if you didn't like your neighbor you could accuse them and Lots of trials happened and many, many people were hung or burned at the stake during that time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. T uh, tens of thousands of witch trials across Europe during this time. So yeah, many, many people is kind of putting it pretty lightly when it comes down to it, right? Um, and exactly, generally the people that were accused were women and they were women that were widows or for whatever reason were... Um, on the the mar they were outside of any sort of like male control is what it says right so they weren't married and they were not near their brothers or not near their dads so um so pretty much any these marginalized women you know if you weren't in a convent and trying to be a normal human being you know obviously um you're a witch right <laughs> <laughs> right so which makes total sense and we're going to find that it's actually pretty ironic that these women were accused of witchcraft when we learn a little bit more about the medical beliefs during this time all right they, so how did they figure I mean, sorry, out bad, bad this ahead, picture no, where's this picture taken uh this is just a piece of artwork they didn't have cameras back then so it I'm, what, I'm it, sorry, what yeah. it is where was I, I meant to say, where was the drone? Where was the picture drone? Oh, yeah. So it's going to, it's an English artist. Yeah. So it's supposed to be English. Oh, I have this pictures of the witch trials. I forgot to, to um, flip through. And for those of you listening at home later on, I'm going to link to this uh, uh, Canva presentation here. So you can take a look at the pictures if you feel so moved to hear my narrations. Yeah. And so um, how did these like things happen? Well, um, like where do they get the ideas of witches or how do people identify the witches? It was because they were looking at populations that had high infant mortality rates. So if a place had like a rash of, um, you know, stillborns or infant deaths, I mean, obviously it's a witch that's doing it, right? So they would find whoever the local widow is or, you know, crooked old lady, I guess, out in the trees and they would blame her. So that's kind of where what it came down to. And then in other parts, the Jewish people. 
those were if pretty much um, the Jewish people were just generally blamed for everything. And so that's where a lot of um, sort of this witchcraft and, and things came from, too. So if there wasn't a woman around to blame, then they blamed Jewish people. So um, <clears throat> and then during this time, we also had uh, football, not American football, uh, but uh, soccer, as we know it in the United States. Uh, hockey and handball were popular sports. Um, some other forms of entertainments that we had were gambling, puppeteers, and minstrels. And then um, early on in this time period of uh, Harvey's life, Catholicism was still the major religion, but the Protestant um, Reformation was very much on the way. All right. Um, so I see, yes, I see Amanda uh, put it into the chat here that Joan of Arc was burned today in history. Absolutely, that is correct. Um, I saw that too it, during my research. She was just a little bit before the people time, but yeah, she definitely fits into that category of a heretic, right? Um, <clears throat> all right, so some famous people from this time, right? All right, so um, let me see here. Uh, who haven't I called on? I don't know who's at iPhone. John, who are some? I I put some pictures up here on the screen. Who are some of these famous people that you recognize? You can't say your neighbor. <laughs> Come on, Nelson. Um, maybe I don't know Martin Luther. Maybe. New Martin Luther's not up here. That's a good guess, though. He would be a famous person around this time. Nobody's face rings a bell up here? That's okay. We got all sorts of different ones. What about you, Kate King? I will say Sir Isaac Newton, I guess. Yep, he's up there for sure. Absolutely. Isaac Newton here is in the top left corner. Um so uh, Isaac Newton, as we know, is a mathematician, came up with the laws of motion. So very good. I like that. Um, all right. Let's see here. Who else do we see? Rachel, if you're there, you see any famous people on the screen you recognize? I don't recognize any of them. Nobody? Okay. That's okay. I know they're a bunch of, they're a bunch of old white dudes and they look pretty boring in general. So I'll just go ahead and I'll, I'll go through them for us all. All right. So upper left-hand corner here, we do have indeed Isaac Newton. We have here um, in the middle, that is all together, William Shakespeare. All right. Um, so William Shakespeare, as we know it, is a playwright. Uh, you know, he's wrote in a bunch of plays, uh, Romeo and Juliet, King Lear, Hamlet, um, that kind of thing. All right. Uh, let's see here. We have um, Anton von Leeuwenhoek, who obviously was a really important person and probably deserves their own funeral cast of history because he was a person who... Um, uh, identified uh, bacteria and protozoa on the microscopic level. So uh, he really, as we'll see, was kind of at the tail end of these guys' life and, you know, started to change that magical thinking in medical to um, like actual like, hey, there's there's these little guys in here that are making you sick, not just like witches. Maybe we should stop burning people and use this in color microscope. All right, um, we have Galileo Galilei. Kind of the opposite 
of um, Anton von Leeuwenhoek. He is the one that identified the uh, motion of the planets within this, the solar system. He did this by observing the four largest moons of Jupiter. Um, we have uh, Rembrandt, right? We probably recognize Rembrandt. Um, I'll show you, we'll talk about him a little bit more. Um, and then uh, also a person that we have up here is Rene Descartes. Um, he is a mathematician, and you probably recognize the phrase, I think, therefore I am, right? He is known for this particular phrase. So he's kind of a philosopher and a mathematician. Um, and then also not pictured on the page here is Ambrose Pere. I was talking about the barber surgeons earlier as a guild. Um, Ambrose Parade probably also deserves his own uh, funeral cast uh, history episode on him because his um, advancement uh, of like battlefield surgery and stuff like that really um, helped us better understand the arterial system. So I wanted to just take a second here to um, show you my favorite uh, Rembrandt print painting. Uh, obviously, this is really good um, listening for the people uh, on the podcast side of this. Uh, but this is the anatomy lesson of Dr. Tulp, all right? And as you can see here, we have Dr. Tulp, and they are dissecting a cadaver. And I really like this um, picture in part because of this picture. So this, for those of you that can see it, this is a digitized kind of 8-bit looking version of the same um, uh, picture. My student, um, Angeline, made that for me. And she said it that it reminded her of embalming lab because it was an instructor with a bunch of students hanging around it. And so I always had a, a connection to this picture. Um, I really, really like it. So I'm just uh, showing you that for uh, fun when it comes right down to it. All right. So some major events, right? We talked about earlier, Nelson mentioned that there were some major events, right? So um, if somebody had to take a guess, let's see here, who haven't I called on yet? Um, Morgan, what do you think this picture is depicting? It looks like he's reaching up into heaven or reaching up towards the sky. Yes, exactly. Demonstrating the major event of the Reformation of Europe, right? So we had basically a movement of people wanting to have control of their own religion, and they had their own belief system, right? So um, probably one of the most well-known figures to kind of fall into this is Henry VIII. He was a little bit later, but um, uh, so change. That was one of the main social changes. The other thing that was happening because of the Reformation, it was the Enlightenment and the scientific revolution. So we had people really starting to think for themselves. Um, with the uh, enlightenment, people were starting to look at their own personal experiences. And then, you know, many of them were interpreting it through God rather than trying to do the Bible and then figure out how to live. And then the scientific revolution, a lot of people, including royalty and stuff, were encouraging some sort of scientific study. So we had kind of during this time, the birth of the scientific movement, especially during Har uh, uh, Harvey's time. Uh, and so uh, we had um, kind of the pathway for some of these people to be able to do um, the things that they wanted to be able to do. So if this wasn't happening at the same time, there's a good chance that um, 
these guys would not have been able to do any of the things that they wanted to do as far as their investigations, because one of the main problems um, was the Catholic laws against uh, dissecting cadavers, right? So, and they were also difficult to procure too, because people didn't want to have damage done to their body. All right. So we also had during this time, the crowns of Scotland and England unite. There was the 30-year war, which was basically a war fought because of the uh, Reformation itself, the Catholics and the Protestants fighting each other. Um, we had the Mayflower delivering pilgrims and forever giving us those goofy hats to wear on um, uh, Thanksgiving. And then finally, kind of at the tail end of um, uh, um, the, their time period, we had the Great Plague. So those are some of the major events that were happening to these people. All right. So uh, what I want us to do now is I want you to think about uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, right? And the medical treatments that people received during Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Cliff, have you ever seen this movie, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? I have not seen it in its entirety ever. Okay, but is there one particular scene that top, pops out into your mind as a really famous one? Uh, not a really. certain night battle. Anybody seen this movie that uh, wants to chime in here on uh, having seen this movie? Nobody? All right, fine. It's just a flesh wound, Ben. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's just Amanda says she's seen it. Pardon, Nelson? Oh, yeah. Amanda raised her hand, which I believe that she has seen it. I'm yeah, I've seen this before. I've seen that pain before. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah, definitely, right? We had the Black Knight. Um, we had the Black Knight losing his limbs. Uh, a mere flesh wound. Um, well, one of the things that was uh, popular during this time, as far as medical treatments go, um, it was uh, bloodletting. And I mentioned uh, Ambrose Parade earlier as being sort of a battlefield surgeon because here's the thing not yet had uh Lewinhook identified the things especially at the beginning of Harvey's life so they were still um believing that they are balancing the four humors black bile yellow bile blood and phlegm all right so that was what they did now interestingly enough most of the doctors did not want to examine their patients directly, but instead examined their wastes. So um, you had a bunch of uh, uh, surgeons and other doctors looking at people's you know, bodily fluids. And also at that same time, which can kind of gross you out a little bit, is that they did not believe in washing their hands. So <laughs> we had a lot, yep, I see the faces in the audience and I really like that. Uh, Amanda, is your hand still raised because you want to add something? No, sorry. I don't know how to unraise it. Oh, okay. Hand. There you go. You got it. All right. Here's Amanda for the rest of her no, night. But I'll give you a fun fact. So the group of um, uh, gentlemen watching that dissection, that famous painting, the creeper in the back holding the paper is Jan Swammerdam, who I will be talking about on June 5th to plug my webinar um but he actually was uh injected um insects prior to Roush injecting uh humans with wax and he proved that there were no humors in insects that they weren't a thing 
There you go. All right. So look forward to that one <laughs> on top of it, right? Very, very good. All right. Um, <laughs> so, um, and the other thing about it is they rarely use any medicine topical ones. And most of the time, um, they contained our two favorite medical ingredients, uh, lead and mercury. So you were, if you, if you didn't get an infection, then you probably got mercury or lead poisoning. Although it really seems like there was a lot of opportunities for people to get lead or mercury poisoning. So probably medicine was one of the uh, low level ones. So instead they were looking for things like um, malaria, which they believe came from sewer gas. Um, there was a guy, his name was Culpepper, who actually did come up with something like medicine. What he did is he had herbal remedies tied to your zodiac sign. So you look at your zodiac sign and say, okay, well, these herbs are good. But um, that really isn't a very effective way of treating people who are sick because, again, bacteria and disease really don't care about what your zodiac time is sign is but one of the things that he did use was wintergreen which can contains salicin which is an ingredient for aspirin so you know occasionally whoever whatever zodiac sign got wintergreen like their headaches went away and they felt a little bit better um the dissection of a cadaver during this time was generally forbidden um, we also had Boyle. um you may recognize him for Boyle's law about pressure with gases um, he identified oxygen and the importance of oxygen, which, as we will see, was actually really important to figuring out um, how blood circulation works. So that was good. And then the other thing is that um, we had the king who had the ability to cure the king's evil, which was another way of saying tu tuberculosis. So royalty would walk around and they would like push on people's lymph nodes or any other swollen spots and then they would give them a gold coin and that was supposedly the way that they were able to cure that. All right. So um, moving on to William uh, Harvey. All right. As I mentioned, um, he was a person who just who basically identified the way that blood moves in your body is really, really important. Um, because a lot of what we know about medicine today is actually based on his research, right? So let's talk about what was believed before him. So up here I have Galen, all right? You really cannot investigate medical history without investigating Galen, all right? Or his name comes a around a lot. And that's because Galen in 162 CE, what he was is he was basically a physician to Roman gladiators. But he um, came up with a lot of description about the way that the human body worked. But that information stood pretty much until Harvey came around in um, the 1500s, right? So for 1300 years or so, what he did stood pat. So the people were that far beyond. So one of the things, so some of the things that Galen did was he identified seven pairs of cranial nerves, right? So it wasn't like he was just screwing around, like that's a pretty big deal. Um, he also distinguished the difference between arteries and veins. He identified that they actually covered, co oh, sorry, carried blood and not air, um, which was the belief for 400 years prior to that. You know, I don't know what people were like back then, but you know, normally, 
you get a cut, air doesn't come out. So I feel like they should have come up with that a lot faster. I guess they just needed somebody like me, either that or the guys like me, we just got hung really quickly because we'd be like, look it, that's not air coming out, that's blood. Like, come on, we need information there. All right. Um, he also believed that the blood was formed in the liver and carried by the veins, um, that blood seeped between the ventricles. And I'll show you a little a heart later, but basically the ventricles are the large part of the lower part of your heart. And he believed that the blood seeped from one to the other through a series of small pores in between, as opposed to like, I don't know, the giant holes that are between the atrias and the ventricles that are pretty obviously there. All right. And then again, he was the one that came up with the idea of the four humors and that the um, heart was actually cooled by blood from the lungs. So he did sort of like recognize that people breathe in and then that was supposed to cool the blood from or the heart. So, all right. So um, even as um, Harvey was coming up with information about this, doctors would rather just stick with galen's then like literally being like harvey hey look at here's a heart this is how it works i can pump some things around through it they're like mm, nope sorry stick with galen his information is good we've been following it for hundreds of years um there um uh there was actually two other contributors prior to uh harvey that gave some good information and i'm definitely going to butcher their names. So we have uh, Ilbin al-Nafis. He was a Muslim scientist who recognized that blood uh, from the heart went to the lungs to be mixed with air that went back to the heart to be distributed through the body. So this guy was really actually very accurately describing what happens, right? From like, if you now had to like ask a kid, you know, how does, you know, air get to your blood? Like this might be a way that they describe it. So like, this is a pretty good in your own words description of it. And there was another guy, Michael Servetus. He's a French guy, so I'm sure that's not how you pronounce his name. In 1546, identified pulmonary circulation. And this informa information was not written down for a long time until he put it in a theological text. And when somebody read it, he was killed for it. So this kind of information, um, you know, was like heretical. Okay, so all that lead up here is to talk about William Harvey. All right, William Harvey was an English physician. He was a doctor of medicine at the age of 24. He was described as a humorous but precise man. So obviously he was a bit of a jokester, but um, had his own business that he needed to get down to. They said he liked to sit in the dark a lot. Um, he also suffered from insomnia because he would get caught up in his own thoughts. And then finally, he loved coffee. So this guy sounds like a prototypical funeral director, right? Or somebody who's like working at a, a morgue or something like, I'm like, oh yeah, this guy. The more we learn about this guy, I really like, okay, this, he's a, he's definitely a good contributor to the funeral service. All right. So one of the things that he did was he was a Lumelian lecturer at the Royal College of Physicians. So this was kind of like, you know, medieval TED Talks, right? It's a big deal to be able to get this because William Harvey, like, when I looked up famous people from this time, the one of the articles I had was top 10 famous people. William Harvey was one of the top 10. So he was a well-respected and well-liked member of his community. 
Um, so during his lecture, he had some canons for guidance. I didn't put them up there. I just picked, I didn't pick all of them. There's like 15 or 20, but I picked four that I really liked in the context of being a teacher. So um, first of all, the first canon is, was to point out what is peculiar to the actual body, which is being dissected, right? So he wanted during the investigation, people to really follow um, what it was that they were looking at that was different from anything that they had learned, right? So I really like that. And then also goes with another one of his canons for guidance was not to speak of anything which can be as well explained without the body or can be read at home, right? So he wasn't interested in repeating what diagrams already told you. He wanted to see the differences amongst his specimens, right? The other thing that was important to remember is that he was starting to get access to cadavers, that's okay, but he didn't wanna waste time on rehashing stuff because he only had a very limited amount of time, all right? He, one of his other canons was to enforce the right opinion by remarks drawn far and near and to illustrate man by the structure of animals. So one of the things that he did was try to find commonalities between animals and humans, which, you know, honestly, during the time would be a very strong statement to make when we still didn't understand DNA, we didn't understand evolution, like these were very cutting edge sort of thoughts, but this is what he had access to. And then finally, I like this one, not to praise or dispraise other anatomists for all did well. And there was some excuse even for those who are in error, right? So he recognized the difficulties that people had as anatomists and um, learning to craft their trade. So I really like some of the stuff that he had to say on that. All right. Um, okay. So he had a couple of like really um, important positions along the way. One was he was the physician to King James I. And um, he, so he worked side by side with the royalty. And one of the people that he um, interacted with was Francis Bacon. Maybe that name sounds familiar to some of you. This guy was like the, like main um, philosopher behind the scientific method. And um, kind of funny that uh, William Harvey kind of thought that uh, Francis Baker was kind of full of himself. And then he was also the physician to uh, King Charles I. Um, and what was kind of interesting for this one is King Charles I would go on a lot of hunting expeditions. And of course, he's going to take his doctor with him in case he gets hurt, right? Well, all these deer carcasses that were there Harvey would dissect them and like learn more about the vascular system from these deer that had been uh, hunted. Um, unfortunately um, for him, kind of during this time, it was during the English Civil War. So his house was actually raided and a lot of his like works on this uh, during this time were destroyed completely. So there's a lot of manuscripts and information that are not there. He also worked as a battlefield surgeon. So um William Harvey had a lot of access uh, to that kind of thing. And then also, I'd like to put, put out here that he was a prominent skeptic regarding allegations of witchcraft. All right. And so there's a particular story that I really like this one. So because he was the physician to the king, he would get kind of high profile cases, right? So he's like Scully from the X-Files. Like he's going out there. He's not believing any of this stuff. 
So he goes out there, he goes to this woman and she's, he said, are you a witch? And she said, yeah. And he said, do you have a familiar? And so for, for, for those of you that don't know what a familiar is, a familiar is some sort of pet that like does witchcraft stuff, right? And so the woman calls over a toad who begins to drink from a little saucer of milk on the floor. And um, um, uh, Harvey was like, okay, well, that's weird. But like, who knows? Maybe she trained this toad to come drink milk. And so he had her go out for something. And while she was gone, he dissected the toad. And um, yeah, right. Like This poor lady spends all this time. You know, they have nothing to be happy about. They live in poor rural communities. The one love of her life is this toad. And uh, Harvey dissects it. And he dissects it and recognizes that this is a normal toad, right? And reports back, this woman is not a witch. This is a normal toad that she just happened to um, to uh, be able to train uh, to drink. So, um, and then unfortunately for us, he died of a brain hemorrhage, kind of ironic for somebody who studied blood in 1657. So that is the life of, of his times. Oh, here's a picture of the Royal Academy of Surgeons. But before we um, go on this, we need to talk about what it is that he was actually doing and how it was important to embalming. As I already mentioned, one of the, um, what the his major work was this Anatomica de uh, Motu Cordis. Sorry, again, I don't speak Latin, but basically what this is telling us, it's on the motion of the heart in animals. That is the Latin translation to that. So what did he do? Well, he injected colored solution into the vascular systems of basically anything that he could get his hands on. So that way he could follow the, um, that way he could follow the, the color changes basically, right? Um, he also was able to see that there was like a complete circle of circulation basically, which was like a really big deal. Um, he also, was able to prove that blood was not consumed in the tissues. All right. So here, this is kind of how we um, manage and can observe our own embalming solution while we're doing this, right? Is that we are displacing the blood from the tissues themselves and then into our drainage. But then we also see embalming solution there too. So we know it's it, there's a, a cycle is what he was able to identify. He was also... Um, pinpointing and backing up uh, uh, Galen's facts that this was a liquid transferal method, right? That it wasn't air. Again, this is so crazy to me that people were like, oh yeah, no, there's definitely air in there. Um, and then finally, um, he, or not finally, but uh, he also recognized that the heart was the center of circulation. So huge deal, right? And then obviously for us, um, you know, we need to keep in mind that as embalmers, you know, the the solution or anything we're injecting is going to drain into our right atrium because when we're alive, that's where it goes, right? And then it is pumped through the rest of the heart um, and then back out to the body, right? Pumped through the heart, the lungs, and then back out to the body. And so he recognized, okay, this is what the heart does. It's not just a superfluous source of heat that's being cooled by people's bad breath, like Galen had uh, um, had postulated, but this instead. He also was able to recognize that the heart contracts with the pulse, right? So when, you know, people, they touch their hand, what's this pulse thing? Well, it's your heart doing it, right? 
um, that the ventricles pump blood to the pulmonary artery and the aorta, which is again, a pretty big deal. Um, and that the veins uh, send a constant flow of blood to the heart, which again was contrary to the belief, right? They thought that the blood was going out to the veins. And one of the ways that he recognized that is like I have here up on the picture, is that veins have flaps inside of it, right? V veins have these little valves in there that are, create a one-way flow. And that is why as embalmers, you really can't embalm veins uh, because they are a one-way flow, basically, right? And when you think about it, it makes total sense um, for them to um, uh, to have this because as, uh, as um, beings that stand upright, we have to fight gravity to get blood back up to our heart. So what sense would it make if our blood was constantly trying to be pumped and not trapped on its way back up? So these little veins and stuff do that. Some of the animals that do not stand upright like us that have veins don't have these valves or these valves aren't as well developed as they are in other mammals such as ourselves. And, you know, obviously giraffe probably has one, right? Because they got to get all the way up there. All right. Um, and then also kind of interestingly for this one too, is that he also identified how life comes from an egg. So he was able to argue um, how like almost all life comes from an egg. And he identified the parts of chicken eggs and other eggs and was like, here is the nutrient part. This is the part that forms, you know, all that other stuff. So really kind of interesting guy. And that is our man, William Harvey. Does anybody have any thoughts that they would like to share about William Harvey before we move on to our next guy? Yes, Cliff. Did he figure out which came first, the chicken or the egg then? <laughs> yeah, you know, that was, I think that's what caused his brain hemorrhage, was he was just thinking too hard in the dark, drinking coffee, and his brain basically exploded thinking about that. All right, anybody else have any thoughts on William Harvey before we move on? All right. Okay. So, uh just for the purposes of the recording, this is going to be a break time. We'll take a word from our sponsor, get a drink of water. Nelson, word from our sponsor for us. Absolutely. This little break is brought to you by our latest embalming machine. It's an amazing embalming machine that has new features. If you are lacking a machine that can handle cavity fluids or phenol-based fluids for hypodermic injections, contact us. Ben can give you a demo through Zoom or any of the conventions. If you want precise embalming and limitless embalming, contact us at Frigid Fluid Company and go to our new website, www.frigidfluid.com. And I can't believe they pay me to say this. This is awesome. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, just kind of as a note, too, if you're at a convention and you see the machine, go up and mess with it. There's nothing wrong with it. In Indiana, I probably had, I don't know, 40 people come up and just look at the machine just a reminder, it is an embalming machine. No matter how cool it looks, that's what it is. And the worst thing you can do at the convention is spray one of us with water, and we really don't care. So um, go up there, enjoy it, mess with the buttons. We, you know, people who buy Lamborghinis don't don't not test drive it before they buy it, right? So go check it out and it's good to go. Okay. Thank you. Okay, moving on to our next guy. All right. Our next guy is Frederick Rausch. All right. Frederick Rausch, um, in a nutshell, as we'll see, was very kind of a Gunter von Hagen's type character in the way that he preserved and displayed 
uh, anatomical specimens. So for people who don't know that name, Gunter von Hagens is the um, uh, the mind behind uh, body worlds, the plastination stuff. So this guy is very kind of similar in that way. But before we talk about what Rausch actually did, one of the things that we need to do is we need to look at um, types of art during his time, all right? Because some people might look at what he does as kind of disturbing. So we want to make sure that we put it in context. So as funeral people, we are pretty familiar with what we call memento mori. Um, and memento mori is a type of art style or architecture is what I'm showing here in this picture of like a church. So it wasn't unusual um, for death being depicted in many different ways. So memento mori is the church, as we can see here. We have this kind of this ossuary. Um, again, this is really excellent stuff for the people who are listening. Um, but, you know, picture in your mind. Um, basically everything decorated with bones right um has anybody ever been to see one of these in person amanda i feel like you might have been to one of these before am i right she not here anymore uh, no she had to go sorry it yeah. takes me a little bit to unmute no i've actually never seen one in person um and ethically i'm a i'm like on the borderline ethically of of you know ethical thought about these definitely the way that we handle and and view um skeletal remains has definitely changed i over i've been time. i've been to some in, in paris and rome and mexico and it's a breathtaking in fact i saw one that it was uh, established in 1892 the same year that frigid was established as a company in illinois so brian took a picture there i'll i'll, I'll share that on social media for some of the ones that follow that but yeah it is and it is I have a brother who's an orthopedic doctor, so I sent him pictures and he was fascinated. He's like, Can, this, this is breathtaking to me. Right. So, so the, the idea of death was very um, commonplace. And then also, especially during Holland, uh, Holland um, uh, which was not quite a country during this time, there was a... Um, an art style that's known as Venitas. I, again, I'm probably saying that wrong, but what it is is it's regular depictions of death, but it's a little bit more subtle. So you kind of see here in the in the picture, right? The one on the left, you know, just somebody like a skull hanging out on their desk. You know, another time that you see this would be um, rotten fruit would be another example of it. So these are kind of like still lifes, but something death related was in there. The picture on the right, a lot of us probably recognize uh, for the listeners at home, it's the very common picture of the smoking skeleton. This is actually a Van Gogh. Um, ben, I have seen this in person. You've seen this Van Gogh? Yes. Where is it at? It is museum? Uh, it was, but I went, God, this would be back in like maybe 2006. So it might have traveled since then. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know... It, I kind of always recognized it and thought, boy, that looks like a Van Gogh. And then when I was just like looking at it today, I was like, oh, well, this whole time, you know. So very cool. Um, is it a big picture, like in person? Okay. All right. We'll just take that as a normal size picture. All right. <laughs> So we also had during this time, there was wax relief sculpture. So basically wax work that represented death in Italy. So 
when we talk about the things that Rausch did in his anatomical museum, like we might be like, whoa, baby, that's kind of strange. Really wasn't out of the place for it, out of place for his time. All right. So, um, <clears throat> so uh, Rausch was a uh, Dutch anatomist and uh, botanist. And um, what he did was he developed techniques for preserving specimens that he used to create dioramas and different scenes. So he was very much into creating artwork using the um, specimens that he had. And he was also very famous. Uh, he didn't quite make the top 10 list of uh, famous people in Europe during this time, but um, he did appear in works of literature. Balzac was one who's a very famous writer. And then another man whose name I can't recall, but they talked about um, his like anatomical specimens coming alive and like uh, Raj like interacting with them and stuff. So he was really well known, especially amongst educational circles. And then um, when he, um, uh, um, and then when he, um, um, then he opened it up for the general public to see too. All right, so Amanda chimes in with us just to remind me, no, sorry, it's bigger, it's a little bigger than a piece of paper. So there you go, uh, not huge. All right, that's a reference to the um, um, Van Gogh. All right. Uh, okay. So what did he do? Well, he, uh, one of the things that he did was he created a proof that there was valves in the lymphatic system. All right. He also recognized that the lymphatic system was different than the vascular system. So you may be asking yourself, um, what is the difference between these two things, right? So um, lymphatic is the ones that you see here in green all right so what we're actually looking at here in the picture sorry again podcast people but we are looking at a capillary bed basically right and so what we see here in green is the lymphatic system so lymph your lymph system transports white blood cells and other things for fighting disease but the other thing that it does is it drains uh fluid and stuff from the tissues okay so that is what the lymphatic system does so again, kind of a big deal when you think about it, because here's now this third system of tubes, and um, uh, Rausch was uh, able to uh, identify that. So um, in, his, in his practice, um, he studied anatomy, all right, he was an anatomist, well known for that, um, but cadavers were still scarce and expensive, and so he had to devise alternatives for preservation. Um, also, one of his jobs, and this is important to understanding what it was that he actually did, um, was that he was the chief instructor to Amsterdam's midwives, all right? So they could not practice until um, they were examined by Rausch. So basically, he had to make sure that they passed the test, which again, keep that in mind when we discuss about his anatomical museums. Now, his... Um, Anatomical Museum was, like I said, a popular tourist destination, especially amongst the learned. Now, this is a passage uh, that I took from um, a book somebody had written um, their account of it. All right, so this is, quote, the museum was more than simply a collection of anatomical evidence. Those who entered were immediately confronted with a tomb containing various skeletons and skeletal remains. Among them was the skull of a newborn baby placed in a box next to a sign with the motto, no head, however strong, escapes cruel death. 
The tomb also contained the skeleton of a boy of three holding the skeleton of a parrot, which had been placed there as an allusion to the saying, time flies, right? So what we're going to mainly see, yeah, I see a, Kelly, thoughts on that? I see your reaction is kind of a cringe face there. It's very cringeworthy in, in my opinion. Right. And, you know, one of the things that I learned about him is that people appreciated these sorts of allegories, but he was very careful not to cross the line with them, right? Which sounds kind of laughable considering that we're talking about the fact that he um, was using children's uh, remains for this kind of stuff, right? But um, he thought that he was kind of like towing the line a lot of time because, you know, people would get a hold of skeletal remains and stuff and have them doing like grotesque things and, and stuff like that. So he thought sort of, well, you know, these are sending them messages. Now, in his, um, in his um, anatomical museum, there were um, uh, three kind of categories of, of preparation. Now, what's kind of important to recognize is that he, um, in one of the things he injected people with uh, after they died, or his specimens in general, was something called cinnabar. All right, and that is what we're looking at here on the screen. Sounds delicious, right? Oh, I like a nice cinnabar in my coffee. All right, you don't want that. Cinnabar is mercury sulfide, so it's extremely poisonous. All right, looks tasty, not good for drinking. But what it did was it imparted a red color to people that made them look very natural. So Rausch, in a way, was like an early restorative artist too. And there's another there's another couple of examples of that as well. So it was important for him to make his specimens look better than, um, than the other ones that would be around. All right. So um, there are three categories, one of which was the dry preparation. So that would be the things like skeletons. All right. Um, and here is an example of that. All right. So as we'll see, a lot of his specimens are lost to time. Um, uh, so we have a lot of, but we have a lot of drawings and copper plates. So for those of you who are on the podcast side, what I am displaying is I am displaying a um, sculpture or a tableau of uh, children's skeletons. And on, in the middle is a bunch of rocks. It is important to note that these rocks are gallstones and kidney stones. In his, um, in his anatomical um, displays, he would have different cabinets in different rooms. And in each cabinet, the centerpiece would have, would be mounted on something with kidney stones and gallstones. So that was very, very common for, um, for them to um, see this, right? All right, so we had the dry preparation. So that would be the skeletal and then also sometimes mummified remains. And then we had what was called wet preparations, all right? So this is an actual specimen of his. And there were two kinds of wet injections, easy, easily removable lids and ones with elaborate designs. So that would not with lids that were more difficult to remove. Now, I want you to take a look at this picture here for those of you on the podcast side at the bottom. What I'm displaying is a, is, is a head in a jar. All right. But along the bottom here, you can see kind of these frills coming up. That's lace. So. Um, um, so that is lace. One of the things that uh, Rosh really, like I said, 
was into was the presentation of his specimens. So it wasn't enough just to have a specimen. He would dress them. And later on, he had two daughters that were painters that would help him do this and apply lace to the specimens. So that's what we're looking at here. So we're like literally looking at a collar. So he gave this specimen a collar, right? Kind of interesting uh, ways to do that. So um, uh, on a lot of the, um, the specimens, he would include clothing, bonnets, glass eyes, a lot, okay, and that kind of goes to a story involving this man. Um, this is Peter the Great, all right, Sarah. I see your face. What are you thinking about? Um, I don't know, just his features. <laughs> He's <laughs> kind of mousy to me. I don't know. <laughs> he got it. He kind of gives off like these Adam Driver vibes, doesn't he? With like yeah. this kind of mustache. Almost kind of looks familiar, right? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Um, and so uh this is Peter the Great. Peter the Great visited uh Rausch's uh museum, okay? And um the story behind it, this is how good the specimens looked is that uh, while he was touring the, the museum, um, uh, Roush had to go do something else and left Peter the Great to walk around, all right? And while he was there, he encountered what he thought was a sleeping child and he kissed it. Now, my question to you, uh, let's see here, uh, Virgil, if you were in an anatomical museum, would you just walk up to a specimen and just kiss it because it, you thought it was a sleeping child? Uh, no, I would not. Okay, that makes two of us. I'm with you. Um, I would take a poll of the 700 people in the audience, but I'm willing to best <laughs> guess that 100% uh, of the people would not be doing that, all right? So I think it's kind of a strange story to begin with, but what the story leads to is that Peter the Great was so impressed by his work. So after the second um, trip, he ended up buying all of uh, Rosh's collection that he had available for 30,000 guilders. And to kind of put that in perspective, today's money, that's about 16,000 bucks, which is like a huge amount of money for his time. So instantly, you know, he was made wealthy because of this. The reason why is that um, Peter the Great was a czar in Russia and was trying to um started news a, a new museum in um St. Petersburg and so he wanted to open that up and he wanted these in there in fact this museum in St. Petersburg is where we can see the most of Rausch's um specimens today um so um also what came along with that first purchase was something that was really very important so um, Rausch was known for injecting his specimens first with wax, as Amanda mentioned earlier, and then once the wax hardened, he would dissect what around the wax, essentially. And that's why I think about him as like the Gunther von Hagens of his time, right? Body worlds before body worlds. But the other thing that he did was he had an injection of what he called embalmicus uh, liquor. And he kept it a secret. Because obvious is a big deal. The other thing about this is that his specimens looked really good. And in fact, he did embalm a few people for funerary purposes, basically, including like a high-ranking Royal Navy um, admiral that had died during the war. And, um, 
a couple other people doing this and they people just loved it they thought it was an excellent formula there's a lot of people would like propose what was in it but according to the purchase here it came with the recipe for the embalmicus and it was clotted pig's blood berlin blue and mercury oxide all right so berlin brew blue also known as prussian blue um is actually a very interesting chemical all on its own so it is considered to be the first synthetic pigment and um in the uh in the picture that i have here the great wave off uh kanagawa i think a lot of people recognize this there's a lot of different versions of this but it's a very uh well-known japanese painting this was done in prussian or berlin blue all right so uh, also like when we think of like blueprints for a house original blueprints were done in Prussian blue. That's why they called it that. So, um, but Man, it gets even better than that. Just so you know, thank you. You didn't know that, Nelson? No, and I'm going to mention that when I'm at sushi places because they have a lot of paintings like this. So I'm going <laughs> to act smarter now. There thank you go, <laughs> right? Somebody learned something from here. All right. Um, well, it gets even better. So uh, Prussian blue is actually on the who's list of essential medicines. Um, no, we'll get to the mercury oxide part. All right. So um, is on the who's list of essential uh, medicines, ironically used as an antidote for heavy metal poisoning. So if you took too much mercury or lead or listened to too much Pantera, you could take Prussian blue and you would feel a lot better. All right. that See, that's a funny joke. And I see all 700 people laughing at that one. Thank you. Um, but no, so the mercury oxide was another ingredient in it, and that also produces a red color. So that's kind of like what was in it, the pig's blood, the Prussian blue, and then the mercury oxide. So kind of ironic that the antidote for heavy metal poisoning was in fact part of this guy's embalming solution, kind of interesting, right? All right, um, so um, as I mentioned before, and then finally kind of as in a note here, um, his specimens, excuse me, are still being used um, today to um, study congenital disorders. I'm going to put um, the link here in the chat if anybody wants to follow this. And then I will also put it in the link to the uh, show notes uh, of an actual scientific study that was done using his um, uh, using his specimens from his plates and the ones that they had available. So I have some of those up here. Oh, that's the, um, let me see here, the Kunstkamera, which is the um, museum in Russia where we can, that was opened with the idea that he was going to be able to do that. All right. So these are some of his drawings and his actual specimens. All right. So the scientist who was going through these specimens um, starting kind of from the left to the right here is we have an acardiac twin or a placental teratoma. They weren't quite sure, but an acardiac twin would be a twin that obviously was born without a heart. Um, as you can see here, this part of the specimen is, you know, it's not really well development. A teratoma is a tumor that is um, made up of actual body tissue where it shouldn't be. So like if you had like teeth growing in your brain, for example, that would be an example of a teratoma. All right. The middle, we have conjoined twins. 
Um, and then to the right, we have a study in hydrocephaly. So um, remember, you know, he had access to these specimens that were the result of babies that died stillborn or fetuses that didn't make it because of his work with the midwives, right? So, you know, they were going to be the most readily available specimens for him. Um, and so they, we actually learn a lot about um, different, different kind of uh, congenital disorders there. Uh, so then uh, the final ones that we have here is the one on the left here is uh, called halocrania. And a uh, this baby was born without a uh, brain and no neck. So essentially kind of like an unformed skull, so to speak. And then finally, a very common one that we still see today that we're regularly um, trying to combat in pregnant women with their vitamin B is spina bifida, where the, um, uh, where the spine doesn't... Um, form correctly. And so all these kinds of things, thanks to Frederick Rausch, we can see and trace these sort of uh, morbidities in um, in his uh, in his own specimen and in children during that time. So um, despite the fact that it was kind of strange, you know, he was very kind of influential, but his preservation techniques and all that other stuff, you know, really led to us to be better embalmers. So um, on that note, that is the end of uh, Frederick Rausch for us. Does anybody have anything that they would like to share or any questions before we um, before we wrap it up here? Nobody has any like... My, my really question to Ben Nelson here for the ones that are not looking at it is... This is a very interesting podcast. What makes you think about creating the episode? Well, so um, as some of the people here in the chat know, I used to teach funeral history and um, I still do to a certain extent. And so I was, I personally, you know, people like American history, they like all this other stuff. I like science history. I've always liked science history. And so when I taught the embalmers portion of it, um, I really like to be able to see some of these uh, scientists through the lens of um, of embalming. So essentially, that's kind of where we are. And then, you know, we learn a little bit more about that kind of stuff. Like one of the main things that you learn when you study the actual history of embalming, it wasn't funeral directors that came up with it. It was anatomists trying to find a better way to preserve their cadavers. I mean, that's really kind of what it comes down to. So we had a lot of information coming in from a lot of different spots for that. Excellent. Thank you, Ben. So, Ben. Yeah. Um, do you know by any chance? Like, I mean, I guess I can Google it, but um, like when the first autopsy was done, was it back in that time or, you know, in that era or was that later? Like, I don't know, but I think it's been and maybe if Amanda's listening, she can chime in on this, too. But I, I feel like they've been doing autopsies or some sort of surgical investigation of death for a long time. Like, yeah. um. I would say like even far back as like ancient Rome and Greece and that kind oh, of okay. Amanda, do you know? I'm gonna guess she probably does know she just can't get off mute fast enough. That's it. All right. So <laughs> you're right. Oh my god, I'm pressing every button except the correct one. <clears throat> um yeah, no, uh autopsies go back to um ancient Greece, essentially. Yeah. I was going to say like if you're if you're looking at them for a medical forensic purpose um yeah I, I mean it, it gets fuzzy if you're looking at modern autopsies I'm not sure but but the idea of it goes back to Greece yeah man yeah. I just I just googled it 1302 that's that's modern 13 
1302. Okay. So there you go. A little bit before this time, they were reviewing that. Yeah, because like as we learn, you know, kind of a lot of these guys kind of got their start with autopsies. Again, one of the main problems is they didn't wash their hands. So like that actually led to a high mortality rate because they would go from the autopsy room to the birthing room and like to make the baby sick, right? So essentially affecting with like all the guts and stuff, um, you know, all the stuff that comes with the guts. So it was actually kind of a a rough time, like. <laughs> When people started washing their hands, like it really was a game changer, you know. But like now, looking back, this whole thing is like you're just walking around with like blood and the four fingers yeah. all over your body, like black bile and yellow bile. It's like, okay, done for dinner. Like Kelly, I am so enthralled with learning more about the embalmicus liquor and the origin of that or how that came about. Can you give us a little bit more on that? I'm just, I, I really want to know as much as I can about that. So the, so I, there's really not a lot to tell. Uh, this was something he kept secret. So, I mean, we could just imagine that he probably took some matching and this worked well. And then, you know, if he's looking for something to impart that red color, because like when he was doing the mercury sulfide, the cinnabar, that kind of was like early on in his career. So he's probably like, okay, well, this is an important thing. And then, you know, um, the synthetic and then who knows, you know, uh, I don't know the answer to that question because a lot of it is still kind of hazy just in the annals of history as it goes. But I imagine it's probably trial and error. Or proprietary too as well, I would suspect. Yeah, definitely. Because like, I, you know, I'm like, he sold that recipe to Peter the Great. It was like, just here, take all my papers. And they were like, oh, we got this one. It's kind of like Elaine in the Soup Nazi, like <laughs> finding all his recipes, like down in his, um, in his armoire, you know? So, <laughs> okay. You. Well, if anybody else has uh, anything they want to share, any thoughts on our, our uh, time? Um, then, um, that's all I have for you. So maybe we have one more word from our sponsor before we go. Absolutely. Bam. This war is brought to you by the Frigid Intropacks. So if you haven't tried Frigid before, we have an Intropack, uh, with cavity fluids, um, silicone-based fluids, arterial fluids, co- and pre-injectors. They're come about 50% off of the, the regular price. There are 12 bottles per case. So if you want to try Frigid, if you don't want to have a high financial commitment, contact us at, frigid, contact us at frigidfluid.com. You can reach out to us on social media. We'll be there to you. And if you have not tried Frigid, I will recommend you to do that. It's, I believe, 90 plus percent of our customers that try Frigid either switch or they, they use it for the first time and they love it. So I highly recommend that. You know, to that point, I'm always a big proponent of trying low-index cavity fluids, and Frigid has a line of mainly low-index cavity fluids, or at least compared to, you know, some of the other companies. So at Intropack, so you could kind of experiment with the different cavity fluids, I think is a great idea. And then there, we also have our embalming kits as well, right, where we have for jaundice and we have for edema. So kind of the fluids that we would recommend for you to use for those cases, you can check them out. So um Absolutely. And our, our chemicals mix well with any other chemicals. So if you don't want to leave your current uh, brand that you use for chemicals, like if you want to add frigid to that, it's, it's pretty much like, you know, having McDonald's burgers with um, five guys fries. You know, we don't we don't we don't tell them that you have to eat it all frigid. 
So we have um, we have good fluids that mix with everything else. Give us a try. And if you have questions, always ask Ben, Mel, Amanda, Dr. Damon, any of us. We're, we're here to help you. Yeah, you know where to find us. It's real easy. You were able to find this. All yes. right. Okay, well, that's it for this episode of the Funeral Cast. You guys have been a great audience. I hope you've enjoyed yourself. <laughs>